0: Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. We plan to cover the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 6. We are working our way through the gospel of Matthew, and now we are working our way for a number of months now through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're really at the center here of the sermon almost. to read the first eight verses. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, apart from You, we can do nothing. So I would ask that by Your Spirit, You would open the eyes of our heart to see what is really here in this passage, and that You would do the miracle of giving us the desire to truly want to honor and glorify You from the the depths of our heart, that You would shift the motivation of our our very being, that we would desire You to get the glory, not ourselves, and help us to repent in areas where we need to repent of religious hypocrisy that may be lurking, certainly is lurking in all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of things could be said to sort of set the stage for this sermon today. As I was reading through Matthew 6, it, it hit me, I guess I just hadn't seen this clearly until this week, and I, I kind of wish I'd seen it sooner, but the structure of verses 1 to 18 started becoming very clear. And just take a second, look at your passage here. If if you take verses 9, which is the Lord's Prayer, if you take verses 9 through 15 and remove it from the passage, which I'm not saying to do that, I'm just saying take it out of the passage for a second, and you just look at the flow of thought without the Lord's Prayer, there are three sections that fit together really tightly. You have Jesus in all three portions saying structurally the same thing. So, if this makes sense, in each part He says, don't be like the hypocrites who do this. Instead, when you give or pray, or fast, do it this way, and then each text ends the same way, so that your giving may be in secret, or that your prayer would be in secret, or that your fasting would be seen by your Father in secret who will reward you. So those three spots are so structurally similar, it's pretty amazing how similar they are. So this sermon, we will just walk through the first two. That's giving to the poor and also the Lord's, uh, excuse me, and prayer. And then next Sunday, I'm going to jump ahead of the Lord's prayer and do fasting. And then we will come back on the following week and work through the Lord's prayer at a little more length than, than perhaps usual. So today we will be covering the first two sections. And really the main thesis of the first 18 verses of this chapter is verse 1. If you get verse 1, you've pretty much got most of verses 1 through 18. So let me reread verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." I'll just stop there. I think easily one of the great objections to the Christian faith, it probably has been a major objection for as long as the Christian faith has existed, is something along the lines of, and you've probably heard it, some version of it, the church is full of hypocrites. You probably know someone who has said, you know, there's just a lot of hypocrisy in the church I grew up in. You know, I found out there was some horrible scandal going on with somebody in the church, and I found out later this person was up to something, and you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. I'd rather just stay out and, and do something else with my life. Well, let me just say, if, if you are not a believer. And you would say, that's pretty much what I've thought. I've struggled with that. Part of me is attracted to certain aspects of the Christian faith, but part of me is deeply repelled. And one thing I can't stand is hypocritical Christians, and I just don't know if I can handle Jesus because He has so many hypocritical followers. Well, let me just say this passage is for you, (laughs) if that is your objection. Because what Jesus is doing in this particular passage is He's saying, hey, I also do not approve of religious hypocrisy. In fact, it's one of the great things that I am preaching this sermon to try to overturn. In fact, those who are true religious hypocrites down to the core don't really know me, Jesus would say. They may have the label Christian on them, but they are not true followers of Christ because true followers of Christ, they may struggle, we may struggle with degrees of hypocrisy. There are moments we aren't as real as we should be. We don't confess as much as we could. Those kinds of things are true. There's levels of hypocrisy in all of our hearts. But in terms of a true hypocrite down to the roots, Jesus says, that is not a true follower of mine. There is such a thing as real full hypocrisy, and that is not Christianity. In fact, Jesus would also, I think, say, in fact, He does essentially say, if you have problems with Christianity because of hypocrites, listen, the hypocrite religious people, they're the ones that put me to death. So, if you have problem with religious hypocrisy, so do I. That's why I was crucified because of religious hypocrisy. Jesus in no way blesses or condones religious hypocrisy. In fact, He, in the strongest words imaginable, rejects it in the New Testament. So don't let hypocrites keep you from Jesus. Jesus Himself is rejecting full-blooded hypocrites, as He does in this very passage before us. Now, I don't know if you remember, a few months ago we were back in chapter 5. We were in chapter 5 for quite a while. And if you look back in chapter 5, I want to remind you of a verse that we read. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You remember that? So our, one of the things we're commanded to do in Matthew 5 is let our good works be publicly visible in some way. Let your light so shine before others that they may see what? What is the light? Your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. So, in, in chapter 5 of the same sermon, Jesus says, make sure your works are visible for people to see. And then the very next chapter, he starts off chapter 6, verse 1. Let me reread it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now you say. Which which is it? Do, do I let my good works show like a bright light for others to see, or do I not do my good works to be seen by others? And Jesus would say, yes. And you say, "Wait, I don't understand. What does that mean? Well, here's the crucial part. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6, and this is crucial to understand what he means in both passages. 6-2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be… What? Praised by others. Now do you see the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6? Chapter 5, Jesus says, your good deeds should shine out of you. If you're a person of integrity, you don't try to flaunt that for your own glory, but it will become visible to people who live around you. You can't hide real integrity. It's going to shine. People are going to see you at work in a difficult moment, and how you respond, if there is real Christ-given integrity, people will see it because your reaction is different from your fellow employees. Even when injustice comes your way and you are treated truly wrongly, if you respond to those around you and your family, roommates, your children, your coworkers, they see real integrity and humility on display when you are wronged, when you are suffering unjustly, There's no way you can hide it. If there is a real contentment and joy in the midst of that, it will be shining like a bright lamp. But the goal is not that people see my good deeds and go, man, you, you are amazing. That's not the goal. It's not to be praised by others. It's what? To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's just be completely real from the beginning of this sermon. This is not something you can do by trying harder. I'm not saying you shouldn't try. <laughs> what I'm saying is, apart from the assistance of the Holy Spirit, it is, impo- it is impossible to break free from the slavery of self-glorification and actually desire the glorification of Jesus over your own reputation. That's not something that's hard to do. That is something that you cannot do unless God frees you from yourself. And so, we've got to beg God for the grace and the freedom and the liberty to actually want to live in such a way that the glory does not go to me, but that people look past me and through me and see the source in God Himself. There's a famous… I've been quoting C.S. Lewis a lot. I don't even, I don't, I'm not even reading C.S. Lewis, I don't know why, he just keeps popping into my head. But C.S. Lewis has this famous essay in one of his books called Meditations in a Toolshed. Only Lewis can get away with titles like that for an essay. You, you title something like that in 10th grade English and you will fail if you meditations in a tool shed. But he has this great little illustration. It was, it was around evening, around sunset, and he goes to the tool shed in the backyard. Maybe you've read this. He opens a door and there's bright yellow sunlight shining through the crack in the door coming into the dark little shed. And he said he saw all these motes of dust floating around in the sunbeam. And he said, just for a moment, he leaned his head down and he for a second looked up the sunbeam. Almost blindingly, the sun came right into his eye and he kind of steps back. And his basic point, there's different points you can make, but the point I want to bring out of that is to say this, the goal is not to just be some shining ray of light that people look at and admire in and of yourself, like, wow, you must be amazing. The goal is to live in such a way that the only explanation for your life and your integrity and your character, and even when you fail, your apology and your repentance, the only explanation has to be the sun, not the beam. In other words, someone doesn't just look at you and say, wow, you're great. They look through you, up the beam, back to the source of where this is coming from, and the grace does not originate in you. The grace originates in God. And when when that happens, people will, it's 1 Peter 3, they will ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you because they don't have the kind of hope that you have. The source of your strength and your joy and your contentment is not coming from your circumstances. So where's it coming from? and they look past you to the source. You don't get the glory. God gets the glory. Is that actually the desire of our heart in these situations? Well, the sermon has three points, and I'm going to sort of link some things together here. The first point is don't give and pray to be seen by men. Don't give and pray to be seen by men. I'm going to reread verse 1 and then verse 2 and 5. Verse 1 again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And verse 5. Now when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." First thing to say, if we live for the praise of man, that praise is extraordinarily fleeting and it cannot actually stabilize and satisfy the human soul. No matter how much praise you get, what, how much more do you want? You want more, right? No, no matter how much attention you get, maybe it's something you did that people are aware of. Maybe it's something through social media that gets a lot of attention that you did, a great accomplishment that people praise you for in some way. No matter how many likes or shares or retweets or whatever you have on your social media, no matter how many you get, is it ever enough to really stabilize and satisfy the soul? There's a quick fix, a rush of feeling of something, and then what? You want more. It's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the way the praise of man works. It feels like freedom when you begin to get praise. It feels like joy. It feels like life. This is amazing. People are looking at me. They're seeing what I'm doing. They're looking at my accomplishments. They're giving me these words of affirmation. This is wonderful. And there's this adrenaline rush, this surge of emotion that says, this is life. And then then think about it. What feels like freedom very quickly becomes its own unique form of slavery, doesn't it? Because suddenly what happens? Suddenly you are now absolutely committed to trying to please this audience. And you're doing whatever you can, spending all this time, anxiety, and worry trying to get more and more of that affection and attention to try to give you more of that feeling. And no matter how much they give you, you always want more. And no matter how much it is, it seems to gratify less and less and less. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to live for human praise, you can get a fair amount of it in this life, and that's all you are going to get. But if you want praise that is true, I mean reward that is true and rich and deep and never-ending, it's the reward God gives to all acts that truly honor and glorify Him from our motives. See, Jesus is not saying, get rid of reward. He's saying, do you want the real thing? Get it in the Father. The Father will delight in and reward by His sheer grace, not by merit, but by grace. He will reward every single deed done out of a motivation that is to His glory and to His honor, and those rewards will never fade away because those rewards are in some way wrapped up with knowing and experiencing the goodness and the greatness of who God is in the first place. Later in Matthew, Jesus says this to the Pharisees yet again, "'They do all their deeds to be seen by others.'" For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, these religious things. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And they love greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others." Now, my guess is those particulars are not your temptation. You're not getting phylacteries on your wrists and on your head with Bible verses in them. You're probably not wearing phylacteries today. You're probably not saying, hey, I want someone to call me rabbi today. You're probably not saying, hey, I want to be called rabbi in the marketplace. That's probably not your temptation. But do we not at root have the exact same temptation every day of every week? Don't we love certain kinds of greetings and certain kinds of compliments and certain kinds of words of affirmation that we just so crave And so often we find ourselves trying to run off those things. Turn turn with me to the right to John chapter 5, Gospel of John chapter 5. let me just say as a footnote, as you're turning there, I'm not saying in this sermon that we should not be giving words of encouragement to others. That would be the worst takeaway from the sermon. No, we absolutely should uh, see evidences of God's grace in fellow believers and tell them about that. We, we, should, we should absolutely affirm, I see God as working this in your life. I've seen this transformation in your character. I praise God for that. We should be a church full of people who encourage one another, but we should not live off the encouragement ourselves. It's a wonderful gift, but it should not be our central motivation. John chapter 5, look at verse 39, again, Jesus responding to the religious hypocrisy of His day. John 5 verse 39, "'You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life.'" Now, just stop there. Right now you are sitting in a church service, probably you have a Bible on your app, it could be a Bible app on your phone, it could be in your lap, you're looking probably at a Bible right now. There is a real temptation to be sitting where you're sitting or standing where I'm standing, there's a real temptation to turn this moment into something about self-idolatry and self-glorification. Because Jesus says there's a way even to study the Scriptures in a way that misses Jesus And it's all about trying to merit something like eternal life from what you're doing. And Jesus says, listen, the point of Bible reading, and I'm all for Bible reading, the point of Bible reading is not to say to your friend, look how much I read this week. Look how much I've memorized this week. Look how accomplished I am in my theology. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, hopefully not even to have to say this out loud, internally to say, I want to know God better. I want to know His promises better. I want to know His love and compassion better than I do. I want to understand God's holiness better than I do. I want to understand my sinfulness better so I can greater appreciate what Christ did for me on the cross. I want to know His tenderness better. So I study Scripture to meet with Jesus, to get to know God. It's not about me checking something off a list so I can brag about it later. How do I know that's in his mind? Well, I think it's there, but keep going. Verse 41, Jesus then says, so verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god. Do you see that let me read verse 44 I'll read it again. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god? What prevents people from sa- from coming to saving faith in Christ is that we prefer the glory and praise of people over the glory and praise of God. That's what the text says. If the glory of God would become greater in our hearts and affections and minds than the glory of others, we would be trusting Christ with saving faith, because that's a mark of saving faith. It's prizing the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, over the glory of man. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Do you remember? We won't turn to it right now. Do you remember Acts chapter 5, the the, the tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira? Let me just remind you real quickly about that story. All all we really remember is that that punchline, right? That the moment where they they die. It's this early church moment where they they die. They breathe their last and collapse in front of Peter. But do you remember the, the setup to the story? Barnabas had sold some land and he truly loved the Lord and loved God's people, and the people had needs. He sold some land, which was a big deal, especially at that time. He brought the proceeds to the apostles. He laid them at the apostles' feet and says, I give this to you. Please use this to help others in the church in Jerusalem. And other people appropriately complimented Barnabas. He wasn't doing it for that reason, but people did say, that's that's wonderful. Thank you. And then this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, members of this early church in Jerusalem, they hear about what Barnabas did. And you know what they think? Man, people are really speaking highly of Barnabas right now. And we, quietly in their heart, they're going, we would like to get in on some of, this, some of these accolades. So we got an idea. We'll sell some of our own property as well. So they do. They sell a chunk of property. It probably would have been worth a, a fair amount of money. They sell the proceed, They sell the money, they get the proceeds. They go to the apostle Peter and they say, okay, Peter, here is all the money we got from selling this land. We want to give it to the church in Jerusalem. But we're not told exact the the percentage, but we're told that they held back some of the money, but said that they gave all of it. So let's just say that they kept, let's say that they gave 70% of the money and they kept back 30%, I'm guessing, okay? They kept back 30%, they gave 70%. Is that still a radical act of generosity to give 70% of a piece of land you sold? That's a radical act of generosity. But here's the problem they said, We're giving you all that we made off the land. They didn't say we're giving you, it would not have been a sin. First of all, it would not have been a sin for them to not sell the land because Peter said when it was yours, it remained your own. You didn't, you weren't commanded to sell it. Number two, when they did sell the land, they weren't required to give 100% of it to the church. Peter says while it was yours, it remains your own. The only thing they did was they said, we're going to say it's all the money when it's only a fraction of the money. And Peter says, Satan has lied your... Satan has filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit of God, and the husband drops down dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in, not having known what happened. Peter asks the same question, did you really sell the land for this much money? She says, yes, we did. Knowing full well she's lying, the Holy Spirit strikes her down dead, she falls down, They both men take them out and bury their bodies. This is in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus, after Pentecost, in the same era we're living in, the new covenant era. What is going on there? The answer is Even in the early church, I hear people say all the time, I want to go back to the early church. Do you? People just dropping dead in the middle of a church service. I don't know if I want to go back to to that necessarily. But what's going on there was they had a love of praise. They saw the praise Barnabas got. They concocted a little scheme. They lied bold-faced to Peter about the money to get more praise than they actually were willing to give for, and the Holy Spirit brought down their death in a moment in that story. Here's what we learn. So often we read that, we go, why would God have struck them down? That just seems for a single lie. And you know, the the real answer to that is why doesn't God strike down all of us the first time we lie? That's the real biblical question. Why would a holy God let liars do that and not bring us to the end of our life? The real question is why is God so merciful? But let's not go down that road right now. I want to make this point. Even in the early church... The desire for glorification, recognition, and fame became a real and live issue that brought about real sin and a real tragic story. And if they were not immune to this, we ourselves should not think ourselves immune. Back here in Matthew 6, let me me quote here Don Carson about prayer. Do I pray more frequently? and more fervently, when I am alone with God than I do in public. Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? If the answers are not enthusiastic affirmatives, we fail the test and fall under Jesus' condemnation here. We are hypocrites. Do you truly love to go and get alone, like Jesus said, to go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, do you actually delight in that? I'm not talking about perfectionism, I'm not talking every moment of every day, you just can't wait to go pray before the Lord, but sincerely, is a regular part of your life a delight in getting alone with God the Father and praying in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit and communing and fellowshipping with God? Is that a regular part of your life that you enjoy, a delight for you? Is it something that you sometimes anticipate you can't wait to get alone and to spend that time with the Lord? Maybe you're exhausted. A lot of my prayers, I get before the Lord and say, Lord, I, part of me does not want to even be doing this right now. And you talk to the Lord and you be, be real, speak to Him like the psalmist would speak to Him, pouring out your complaint before the Lord, telling the Lord your trouble, and then saying, God, I am so thankful that you listen. I am so thankful that you're there. Thinking back even on God's mercy and grace in your life, is that a real delight in our lives or is it just something that we, that we do to sort of check it off the list or something that we essentially ignore altogether? Look at verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, let me just say something here. You remember when Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? Remember the story? They have the the, the sacrifices there, and it's up on an altar, and they're calling down on Baal to bring fire from heaven, essentially lightning, I, I suppose, to burn up the offering. And you remember what happens? The prophets of Baal, it says here, they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, this is holy mockery, there is such a thing, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. (laughs) And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention." Don Carson says, "'Prayer should not consist of heaped-up phrases, idle repetitions, and the ridiculous assumption that the probability of an answer is in proportion to the total number of words in our prayer. It is shameful to think that we can, rest, uh, we can get favors from God by the sheer volume of prayer mechanically given.'" Now, I want to footnote things, because in the Sermon on the Mount, it's very easy to take Jesus' statements as total absolutes when there's a, it's a little more complicated sometimes. So, do you remember, let me put a parallel text, I was thinking about this, studying this. If you, if you take this text where he says, don't heap up empty phrases as you pray like the Gentiles, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Let me put a parallel to that, because remember, we interpret Jesus' words with other scriptures, right? So, Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Remember, the widow is going to the judge who is an evil man and she's pleading for justice. And she goes, and she goes, and she goes. And the judge says, I love that he was this honest about himself, I neither fear God nor care about this widow. But this man is very self-aware and very honest about his sin. I don't care about God. I don't care about this widow, but she is almost beating me up by her continual coming to me and asking for justice. So just to get her to get off my back, I'll give her what she wants. This is my paraphrase of the passage, okay? I'll give her what she wants. And then Jesus says, How much more the heavenly Father will He not hear His elect when they cry out to Him day and night? Will He not give them justice for what they plead for? And then Jesus says He told this parable that we might always pray and never give up. So let's put the two texts side by side. They need to complement and explain one another. Jesus is not opposed to us praying relentlessly for significant things in our life like the salvation of people we love. You pray and you knock until the door opens, right? You seek until you find. You keep on going and keep on asking until the answer is given. Jesus is not saying we should stop praying for the salvation of other people once we do it once or twice. No, we cont- we, like the persistent widow, we, we importunately, the word is used, We continuously we go to the throne of grace and plead with God. What Jesus is warning against here in this text is, Don't use all these highfalutin religious phrases and mount them up one on top of another because you're showing off your amazing religious vocabulary in such a way that you think, if you just say one thing after another on all these phrases, God surely can't resist your eloquence and your incredible skill at praying. That's not the point. Look, Look at the very next verse, Matthew 6 verse 8, do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Think about how comforting that truth is. So let's talk for a minute about private prayer versus public prayer. Again, is Jesus condemning public prayer in this passage? Of course not. There's public prayer all over the Bible. You can look at them, Nehemiah chapter 9 or many of the Psalms in the New Testament, the Acts, uh, the, they, they have many public prayers, Acts 4. But let's think about private prayer for a second. If anyone, if you would think anyone does not need to pray. It would be God incarnate, Jesus Christ, right? If you thought, anyone doesn't need to pray, surely it's Jesus. And yet, let's look at the example of Jesus, and you don't have to turn to these, I'll just read through a few, but listen to the exemplary prayer, prayer life of our Lord. Luke 5, verse 15, But now, even more, the report about Him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear Him and to be healed of their infirmities, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So He's becoming famous. People want to see Him, to get healing. And He will will heal people, but then He'll stop and say, I've got to go be alone with the Father. And He will go to desolate places to pray, Luke 9.18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, and He asked them, Who do crowds say that I am? Luke 9.28. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with Him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray, and as they were praying. The appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzling white." Did you know the transfiguration, that scene, happened because Jesus took three disciples up on a mountain to pray alone? That's how the transfiguration happened. Luke 11, 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, "'Lord, teach us to pray,' as John taught his disciples." He set such an example in His personal private life of prayer that the disciples say, Lord, You've got to teach us to do what You do. This prayer life is amazing. Teach us how to pray. The Garden of Gethsemane is perhaps the most astonishing of all Jesus' prayers. Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and prayed those agonizing prayers before the cross. But how about this one earlier in Luke chapter 6 when He's about to choose the twelve apostles? Do you remember this? In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Jesus, in his humanity, prayed all night before he chose the twelve apostles. If Jesus, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, in his humanity, felt the need to pray continuously in private to His Father, even at times praying all night probably from sundown to sun up through all the watches of the night. If Jesus had to pray that much and delighted in this prayer time with the Father, how much more do we need to pursue prayer with God the Father? Now, how are we just supposed to think here about our giving? You know, I, I listened to several sermons this week, and it was funny. Two different pastors told almost the same kind of story. They're different examples of the same kind of thing. I'm sure this happens all over the place. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and John, John MacArthur told the same basic story, which is uh, they had, uh, after certain church services, some, somebody came up to them, and I think with Kevin DeYoung, a guy came up and said, listen, pastor, I, you know, I'd I like to give my, uh, my annual offering to the church today. Okay, I don't I don't know why you needed me to be here, but I'm I'm glad to be here and help out. He said, "Well, Pastor, I wanted to make sure I gave it to you because I want to make sure it goes to the right place." By the way, if you give it to me, it probably won't go to the right place, so I wouldn't recommend giving it to me. Uh, so the, the person, he gives it to Kevin Young, and the guy, oh, you know, he's a, you know I, just, I like to save the whole year, and I'll just give one big lump sum, and he went on and on and on about how much he was giving, and, and Kevin Young said, oh, you know, thank you very much, but, but Kevin said, I have to question the motives of why you are making such a big deal. Just quietly, don't let, the, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just give in a way that's not trying to be ostentatious, trying to show off, look at me, look at me. No, don't sound the trumpet. Just, just give. Don't, don't don't even think about it. Don't don't try to bring it up. Uh, MacArthur had a similar story of a man coming up and presenting him with some check and saying, "Look, I've really, you know, this is a big one right here, kind of thing." And MacArthur's like, "Why are you why are you bragging about the amount? That's not the way we're supposed to do it." Uh, you know, it, you, sometimes you see, and I won't even mention specifics, but I remember a natural disaster happened a few years ago in in I believe it was in Haiti, and it was a horrible uh, tragedy over ten years ago. And I just remember a celebrity, a well known actor wrote this big giant check, and suddenly it's on TV and I'm going, why do we know about this? (laughs) There's no reason for us to be knowing that $3 million were given to this particular organization. The left hand does not need to know what the right hand is doing. Let's just give in a way that is not trying to draw attention to ourselves. I mean, there are subtle ways that we can do this. It's not always a sin, by the way, to tell people about things the Lord's doing in your life and how the Lord's teaching you, of course not. but. Sometimes I wonder when, when, when someone, you know, is it necessary for me to photograph my quiet time and to sell, tell the whole world I just had my two-hour long quiet time this morning? I don't know that I need to be showing that to the world. There, there are subtle ways and sometimes less subtle ways that we can try to flaunt our religious uh, accomplishments. So what's a rule we can use to know when we sort of show and when we hide some of these good works? And this came from DeYoung. I don't think it was original to DeYoung, but he got it from someone. I thought there was a lot of wisdom. Think about this. We ought to show when we're tempted to hide, and we ought to hide when we are tempted to show. I think there's a world of wisdom in that statement. We ought to show when we are tempted to hide, and we ought to hide when we are tempted to show. DeYoung said, listen, when you're at the church picnic, you probably don't want to have your your children gather around and you start going through one of the great creedal confessions with your eight-year-old. Now, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, Father. That is right, my son. I hope everyone is watching. When, it, when, it, when, it's <laughs> when you're in a church setting, no need to start flaunting or showing off. Of course, we pray and we, we do what we're supposed to do. But at that moment, that's not the time to show, okay? When you're tempted to show, that might be a time where you don't want to have to show as much. But when you're at a restaurant in Athens with your family, isn't it harder to pray there than it is to pray in the gym next door here? Oh man, I, I just know there's moments where I'm in a restaurant with people, and even to ask the person I'm eating with, can we pray, is hard sometimes to do. There's a desire to almost skip it, to want to skip it. I've felt that pressure before. So when you are tempted to show, that's probably a time you need to do a little bit more hiding. But when you are tempted to hide your good deeds, that's a particular time where you should be, uh, you, you should be showing it. If it's, if it's likely to win approval around you, then beware of your motives. If it's likely to lose approval from those around you, then you probably have the right motive in why you're doing it. See what I'm getting at there? So, that, that's something to think about as we consider these kinds of, of deeds. Now, I want to move towards a conclusion here. Let's look again at, at uh, verse, uh, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In Sunday school, in the gym, we were talking about the abortion issue, and we were reading Psalm 139 about you knit me together in my mother's womb. But early in that chapter, verse 4, it says this, "'Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether.'" Don't you love that? Sometimes I've even done, you know, you sit down to pray, you say, Lord, you know what I'm about to say. I don't even know what I'm about to say. You already, before a word is on my lips, you know it completely, O Lord. So when we sit down to pray, we, we, we go, listen, as I'm about to pour out my heart to God, I'm not here to give God a lesson on what He's supposed to be doing in the world. I'm not here to instruct God. God's not ignorant of something that I'm about to inform Him of. I remember hearing one time a pastor say, when, I, when, he, was in, when he was younger, I think he was in maybe high school at the time, he said uh, he used to try to instruct God in his prayers. Like, God, I don't know if you're seeing this correctly, but over here is a problem, and it would be great if you could really fix this. He says, well, I got a little older, and I realized, uh, yeah, God sort of knows all that stuff ahead of time. It's not something I'm here to inform Him about. So God knows all your needs before you open your mouth to ask Him doesn't mean you don't ask Him, it just means our attitude should be God. You are my Father, and You love me, and You care about me, and You want to provide for me all my needs. You want me to grow in holiness. You delight in me in all the appropriate ways in Christ, and You have given me an eternal inheritance, and You're promising to work every event in my life for my eternal good, making me more like Jesus. You've given me Your Son, how much more will You give me everything else with Him? This is all true. And delighting and resting in God's heavenly concern and love and care for us is one of the things we should aim at as we pray. Romans 11, Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? We're not there to counsel Him. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. So, our posture in prayer is we come before God, We bow before Him as our Father. We know that He knows everything before we ask. All of our needs are to be provided, and we speak to Him as our caring Father, knowing that because of the work of Christ, God has opened that way for us to know Him and to pray, our Father who is in heaven. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, even as I say those words, it it is amazing to think about the truth that those words convey, that the God who reigns in heaven is our Father because of Christ. Lord Jesus, after You died for sin and rose from the dead, You spoke to Mary Magdalene and You said, go tell My disciples that I am going to My God and Your God, to My Father and Your Father. It is astonishing what the gospel has opened up for us as hell-deserving sinners who have been rescued by sheer grace. God, thank You that You are our Father, that You care about us infinitely more than any parent in this room cares about uh, his or her children. It's astonishing to think about. You really care about what is best for us, and You are uh, committed to drawing us towards what is best for us, making us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that we would not do our good deeds to be praised, but I pray we wouldn't hide our lamp under the bed. I pray that we would let our light shine before others, but not that they would see our good works and glorify us, that they would see our good deeds and glorify You in heaven. And God, for all of us, we need motives to be adjusted. No one is perfect in this area. We all need Your grace to make us more like Christ in this and to be more committed to Your glory rather than our own. Forgive us in the thousand ways that we have sinned in this area. Help us to repent truly and to find greater satisfaction in bringing attention and glory to You than in attention and glory to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.